Jerome was born in the Italian city of Ferrara in 1452. He was not much of a doctrinal reformer as Huss and Wycliffe, but made significant inroads in the moral reforms within the church. He would often write and preach against the evil and immoral behavior of his countrymen, calling sinners to repentance and to sanctified living. At the age of 38, he moved to Florence, where he would continue his preaching ministry. Through a series of circumstances, he would ultimately be appointed the leader of that city. And during his reign, Europe was going through the Renaissance, a renaissance of culture, music, and art, and Florence was often at the center of it. And through his preaching ministry, many reforms were done in the society itself. People began to forsake wickedness and sin, but his reforms were ultimately met with resistance. One of his greatest enemies was the Pope himself. Pope Alexander VI was perhaps the most evil and vile of all the popes who sat in Peter's seat. Alexander took particular aim at Jerome's work, seeking to undermine him at every step. He gave himself to extortion, bribery, even murder in order to stop Jerome's reforms. Ultimately, Jerome of Savonarola would be executed by fire in May of 1498 at a very young age. The evil that Savonarola faced is a reminder of the fallenness of this world. A reflection of the length to which worldly men will go in order to protect their future. Alexander's motivation was in order to keep his sons in positions of power. He saw Jerome as a threat to this. Alexander's actions, while grotesque, are a parable of our own times. Men of great power using their power and control in order to protect themselves and to propagate and protect their family. And it is this instinct of self-preservation, particularly seeking to protect ourselves and those that we love through evil means that the Lord brings to light in our passage this morning. As we consider, we have come to, in chapter 16, probably one of the most shocking and surprising parables that Jesus ever told. It is one that is jarring to the mind. Even the brothers who were preparing to pray this morning found their preparation time quite confusing as they sought to understand this quite confusing parable. How could Jesus make a lesson out of such a terrible story? It is a quite awful story. It is a quite atrocious one. Not that the narrative is bad, but the contents therein. But it was His story. Jesus made it up, and He made it up in order to tell and to drive home a particular point. It is shocking in nature intentionally in order to jar the minds of the disciples away from a slumber into covetousness, where they loved money more than people, where they loved money more than God, and to awaken them, if it were, to the dangers of of materialism. Of course, Luke has organized this letter in, a, in an orderly fashion. It would be wrong to think 
that we are still thinking of the evangelistic message that we considered last week in chapter 15. Chapter 15 is perhaps the most well-known of all of the parables that Jesus told. And we considered the three parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. And we considered what Jesus was doing there was calling the Pharisees who had rejected Him. He was calling them to His kingdom. If they would only forsake themselves and embrace Him as King, then they too could be welcomed like the prodigal son into His kingdom. And we're told here in verse 1 of chapter 16 that Jesus' attention has turned back to His disciples. This is a parable taught primarily with the devoted follower of Christ in mind. He is writing this not to, or speaking this not to the lost world, but to you and I this morning. Those who have turned from their sins and trusted in Christ. Jesus is on His journey to Jerusalem where He will die the death that you and I deserved as a penal substitutionary atoning sacrifice. He will die in the place of sinners. And and before He departs, Jesus is preparing His disciples for life after His ascension. For you and I this morning to think about how do you and I handle money, material resources in a wicked world? And perhaps, what could we learn from the world as we consider how we use and prepare for the future? Well, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 16 if you've not done so already. It's found on page 875 in the Pew Bibles provided. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to take that as our gift to you. Take it home, read it, get to know God through it. And we hope that you would come back and learn more from it. Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what I will do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, that may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? 
And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This morning we hope to consider this particular truth. That Christians must guard against the love of money. This is a particular trap. Jesus is writing to Christians. Jesus is speaking to Christians. He is saying you must be careful. Money is an alluring temptation. And so we must guard against it, Jesus says, by laying up treasures in heaven through, as we'll see, cultivating a godly attitude toward money. Our minds need to be reformed about money. They need to be renewed. We need to think about them differently. And what Jesus does here to help His disciples and to help us is to not necessarily think of the evil of money, but the utility of it. To think of the utility of money in light of eternity. And so what Jesus does is He takes money and He casts it in the light of eternity. How can we use money for the future? By looking at the way the world plans for the future with their money. How could Christians use their money today that will impact tomorrow? How can Christians cultivate an attitude towards the money they have in their wallet such that when they spend it, it has a utilitarian purpose that will impact eternity? In other words, a dollar used today will not be used in order to plan for a peaceful retirement in the here and now. But that the use of our money will be such that we will impact eternity for it. And we'll be talking about in eternity how we served others with the resources God gave us. And so the purpose of our time this morning is to cultivate a heart that has a heavenly attitude toward earthly money. And right out of the gate, we want to be very clear, because I know some of you fall asleep in about 10 minutes, so I'll get you now. Money is not evil. Jesus never taught that money was evil. So today, if you are prosperous, if the Lord has blessed you with material possessions, do not think that Jesus is saying you have to be poor in order to be blessed. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is if you have been blessed, are you leveraging those resources for the kingdom or for your own pleasure? How are you stewarding the resources God has given you? And so we see in this story a surprising story. I believe this is a surprising story. And he begins by telling a story that is strange. It is a very tactful 
and very wise God that we serve, that He communicates a story that sort of lodges in the mind a bit. You know, we hear stories every day, and we're like, well, that makes sense. That, that, okay, I understand. I, I, you kind of know where the story's going. You, you've been there. You've read a book. You've watched a movie. You know the plot line. You, you've, you've, you see it kind of unfolding before you. And, and, and it's like, okay, I know where this is going. Yes, here's the villain. Yes, here's the protagonist. Okay, I understand where this plot is going. But Jesus tells this particular parable in such a way as to scandalize the hearers. To be like, Jesus, that's a bad story. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that, you, that even happened. That's so wicked, so vile, so wrong. In order to lodge it in our mind. In order to awaken us in our slumber. Well, let's look here at this surprising story. Number one, we, we see here the charge. We are told that there's just a number of characters in Jesus' story. And it begins with a rich man who had a manager. A rich man who had a manager. And this particular manager, we are told, who is managing this rich man's estate, no doubt a very large estate with many moving parts, he was responsible for it. And Jesus tells the parable in such a way that the rich man doesn't really get involved in the day-to-day -day activities of his business, but rather has given it over to a steward, a manager, who will manage his industry. And this particular verb, we are told about this manager, that he was wasting his possessions. This verbally is a cue to the reader that Jesus is kind of reflecting back on that prodigal son who wasted all of his inheritance. As a reminder to us that, that Jesus here is making a connection to the kind of depravity of the world that was made evident in that son, but also in this manager. And we're told that charges were brought against him that he was wasting his possession. We are not told in detail what it was he was doing, but no doubt he was being nefarious in his dealings. And it's even maybe perhaps shown evident in the way that he deals with his boss's debtors by canceling large sums of debt, as we'll see in a moment. Well, naturally, the manager, we are told, or the, rather the boss, the, the rich man, finds out about his manager and he fires him. And he called him and he said to him, what is this that I hear? Turn in your account of management, for you can no longer be a manager. The boss learns of the, this man's improprieties, he learns about his dishonest dealings, and terminates his employment. But as we see without wisdom, he doesn't terminate him immediately, as would have been the best, but rather he allows him to continue to work and finish up his, his particular dealings here. And so this man, as he sort of looks at his future, like so many of us perhaps have been in when we've been terminated or, or our, lost our job, not because of anything perhaps we've done, we think about the future. We begin to think, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? How am I going to live? How am I going to support my family? And, and naturally, like us, this man begins to reflect, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? How am I going to provide for myself? What am I going to do? Well, I, I can't work. He's a white-collar man. He, he's never, he doesn't have rough hands. He's got those smooth, buttery hands that's never touched a shovel in his life. He says, I can't dig. I can't go out and get my hands dirty. Nor can I beg. I'm too proud to beg. This man is in an impasse in his life. 
And so he seeks to perpetuate his dishonesty in order to benefit his future. And Jesus tells us that he concocts a plan in order to further extort his employer in order to prepare for himself a better future. Notice his plan here. Verse 4. I have decided what I will do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Here is the main idea of the text. This is it. This is what Jesus is going to use, and this is how the parable is going to turn at the end. So pay attention to it. He says, here's what I'll do. I will make decisions today that will impact tomorrow. I will make decisions dishonestly. So Jesus is not going to commend his dishonesty, but his wisdom here. This man realizes that he can protect his future by getting some people on his good side. His plan is is to cut these debtors' uh, debts down so that when he's fired, they will be obliged to scratch his back. It's a pretty, he's saying, hey, look, hey, hey, remember I cut your debt down? Remember that? Remember when I helped you out on your bill? Oh, yeah, 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 I remember that. Well, what are you going to do for me? He's preparing for his future by making decisions today. And so he executes his plan. We are told that he calls in his master's debtors. And notice here, verse 5, summoning his master's debtors one by one. Now Jesus only tells of two. There was more than two debtors implied in that. But he tells us of these two. He calls in the first who owes a hundred measures of oil. Now, this was a quite sizable debt, about 875 gallons of olive oil. 875 gallons of olive oil would have been worth about a hundred denarii. A denarii, this would essentially have equaled over three years of pay for a day, day-waged worker. So this would have been three years of income for a blue-collar worker, someone who is a day laborer. And the man comes in and he cuts the debt in half. I mean, imagine the significance of that debt that has just been sliced in half. Well, then there's another, we are told, and this was a, a large amount of wheat, a hundred measures of wheat. This would have yielded about a hundred acres of wheat. So if any of y'all are involved in agriculture, a hundred acres of produce, of wheat, of production. This is a significant amount. This would have measured into about 10 years worth of income. And he says, cut it by 20%. And as we think, even the percentage here is just because of the, the size of the debt, which explains why the discount was less. In all, these discounts would have amounted to $100,000. Just these two. Approximately $100,000 of debt wiped off by this manager. Now you can get to see why his plan was so effective. He was handicapping these people into providing for him and for his future. This man walked away just from these two deals confident that there would be a sufficient back-scratching in the future. 
But then comes the surprising twist. We would think that the boss comes in and says, what have you done? How foolish you are. I'm going to arrest you. You can't further extort me. You've robbed me even further. I'm calling the authorities right now, and they are going to lock you up. But that is not what he does, is it? Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. We notice another number of things here. Number one, he is commended for his shrewdness. Uh, The word itself means his wisdom, his prudence. He's exercising prudence. And now, of course, Jesus labels him as a dishonest manager. So he's no way commending his evil, but rather his shrewdness, his prudence, that self-preservation, that fight-or-flight behavior that is evident in so many of us, that we protect our futures. It's instinctive in us. Uh, Many of you, no doubt, given your age, have spent a number of years preparing for retirement, uh, ensuring that when you cease to work, that you will have sufficient money to last until you die. One of the challenges that Americans are facing is that we are living longer on average. And the problem is, is that Americans are living longer and retiring earlier. And it is creating a recipe for disaster. Um, Because so many of us, when we go into retirement, no doubt you face this if you are in that position, is that you tend to be tempted to spend the same way you spent when you were employed. And you recognize very quickly that in retirement you can't be as frivolous as you were when you could go and work a couple extra shifts. You could do some overtime to make up for your frivolous spending. In retirement, it's fixed. You don't have an unending resource. And so Jesus here holds up this example, not to highlight the evil, but the shrewdness. Notice there in verse 8 the statement Jesus makes. It begins with the word for, and this is the support. Again, this is what he is commending. For the sons of this world, this is a phrase that means unbelievers, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And the sons of light is a biblical reference to the people of God. So so Jesus is saying that worldly people prepare for the future better than believers, Christians. Friend, isn't that been our experience? Has that not been your experience? If you have your neighbors, your friends and families, I wonder how much financial advice you've received more from those in the world than you had from even Christians. Uh, No doubt we would probably be outnumbered 10 to 1 if you just think of the number of Christian organizations to secular banks and financial advisors that are helping the world prepare for the future. And Jesus is saying to his disciples that there is a, there's a lesson to be learned here. 
He's commending the prudence of his plan, that he had a plan to protect his future. To protect his future. But one of the surprising things is, as we consider this parallel or this comparison, is that worldly people don't live forever. But Christians do. In other words, we're not planning for our 60s to 80s. We're planning for our 6,000s and 6 millions. Our attitude isn't that when we go in the grave, that's it, rest in peace, we're done. No, 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 no. You see, when you were born again, when you received the Spirit and were regenerate, that was the beginning of eternity. You shall never die, the Word says. You shall live forever. And so when we as Christians plan for the future, we're not planning for the immediate future of the next several decades. But we are planning for the millennium that is yet to come. The ushering in of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus here in this text draws out a number of lessons. He tells this surprising story in order to get the disciples to think about how shrewd they are in their financial dealings. Will they be like those in this world who are shrewd, not to amass earthly wealth, but shrewd in their resources to further the kingdom of God? In other words, this is the point Jesus wants His disciples and He wants you to consider. That how you spend your money today should impact tomorrow. That how you spend and how you leverage your resources that you have today matters for eternity. And so he gives us three ways to cultivate a healthy attitude towards earthly money. And here they are. Three points I want us to consider. We'll go through them very quickly. Number one, Jesus says there in verse 9 that we ought to use your money to serve others. Use your money to serve others. Look at what Jesus says there in verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that, purpose statement, when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, be like that dishonest manager. Not by being dishonest in your dealings, but by using your money to make friends. Use your money to serve others so that when you're in heaven, you get to hear story after story about how the resources you gave away impacted people whom you've never met. That you didn't know how when you gave that money to help that person in need, how it helped them strengthen their faith in the Lord. It was a turning point in their soul. A turning point in their life. And you forever made an eternal impact on somebody because you didn't spend your money on yourself, on your own pleasures, but to serve others. Jesus uses a very strange phrase here, unrighteous wealth. Essentially what He means is worldly wealth possessions. 
He's contrasting here a picture of heaven and earth. He says, use your earthly possessions in order to impact your heavenly home. It is a great truth for you to consider, isn't it? So often we joke about how we can't take it with us. You've seen the, maybe the meme of the, you know, the hearst with the U-Haul behind it. It is, a, it is a quite telling parable. You can't take it with you, we're told. Uh, that's not according to Jesus. You can take it with you. If you spend it, not on yourself, but on others. Sell your possessions, Jesus told, and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Friend, when you give faithfully, regularly to this local church ministry, you are investing not in the stock market that's going to generate, you know, tenfold, a hundredfold, whatever it is that your faith teacher is telling you. But that it will create an impact because the word will go out. We give primarily to the local church, not merely to keep the lights on. That's not why we give. We give primarily because we want to see gospel ministry propagated. Through the examples that we've shared of pastors who preach and teach the word that raise up the next generation, that then send them out, then they go and pastor local churches where they preach and teach faithfully and raise up a generation in that church and then they send out and then they go and do the same and and you begin to see how it multiplies and begins to spread. That's the return that your money goes to. We give to people. Not to buildings. Buildings are wonderful and they have a utilitarian use. We need to take care of ours. We, we are thankful for the, the generation that came before us who sacrificed vacations and whatever in order to build this wonderful structure that we can meet in today. We are thankful for them. But we must never lose sight that as Christians we are primarily giving to people to help others and to propagate the gospel This is what Paul told young Timothy. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Friend, that is why we put such an important emphasis on faithfulness in the pulpit. Because your resources matter. Your resources go to ensure that the word is preached faithfully. Pastor Mike McKinley says this, the miser The workaholic, the overspender, and the person who spends a great portion of their time worrying about their finances, each lives in service to unrighteous wealth. The Pharisees fell into this category, and so they could do nothing better than to sneer at Jesus' teaching. Their service to the master of, of mammon meant that there was no room in their lives for them to serve God. Their hearts were committed to one master, money. And so without realizing it, they had grown to despise the other. Here, here's the point I wanted us to hear. Our finances represent one important arena in which our discipleship is played out. Our bank statements, your bank statements, 
will reveal the things that truly you love. We cannot pay lip service, he says, to generosity towards the things of God, but the one who sees our heart knows perfectly well whether we love him or our money. Friend, use your money to serve others. But also we see in verses 10 and 12, recognize your money belongs to God. Verses 10 and 12, Jesus here helps to cultivate a heavenly attitude towards earthly money by saying, hey friend, that money that you claim is yours, (laughs) wrong. It's really God's and you are a mere steward of the money you have in your bank account. The Bible tells us over and over and over that everything is God's. Psalm 139, the passage you heard earlier, a passage we often use to think about the sanctity of human life, is a reminder that God created you. He gave you the abilities that you have in order to earn the money that you possess. In this way, He is the ultimate source of everything you have. He gave you the skill. He gave you the intellect. He gave you the knowledge in order to earn. Or as James says in James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, from whom there is no shadow due to change. Everything comes from God. Everything is His. Do you recognize that that you are a mere steward, that you will have to give an account for every penny you've ever spent? As a Christian, this is a matter of discipleship, for which we are accountable. Paul writes to young Timothy again and says, as for the rich in this present age, is that you? Are you rich? If you're American, you, you most likely are, compared to the world around us. Charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He richly provides us. Everything we enjoy, everything we have is from Him and therefore must be stewarded well. Pastor John MacArthur says it this way, I have heard people say, if I had more, I would give more. He says, no, you wouldn't. Truly faithful people are generous because of their character, not because of their circumstances. The widow who had virtually nothing gave everything she had. Lots of people who have everything give nothing. A person with meager resources who spends everything he has on himself is not going to become selfless if he becomes rich. No more, m- more money will only exacerbate the self-indulgent impulse and compound the unfaithful steward's judgment. This is what Jesus says there in verse 10. Look with me. The one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in very little is dishonest in much. If you who have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, that is worldly wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And when we see these parables lived out among us, these illustrations, people winning the lottery and then going broke, I mean, they they win millions of dollars and then they're in bankruptcy within a number of years. Why? Because they weren't faithful in a little, they're never going to be faithful in a lot. And, And you might hear, sit here today and say, the solution to your problem is more money. If I had more money, I would pay off my debts. If I had more money, I would give more money. No, you wouldn't. If you've not faithful the little bit you have, God isn't going to give you an abundance to go waste. 
Sometimes he, he takes away in order that we recognize that we need to first baby step, be faithful in the little bit that we have. So often in pastoral ministry, I encourage young pastors to go pastor small churches. And if you'll be faithful with a few, then God will bless you with more. It is a true reminder, even here in this world, how are you using your resources? How are you stewarding the resources you have in order to make much of Jesus? Friend, revel in the beauty of verse 11. There's a promise here to claim, isn't there? That if you would steward the resources you have for kingdom purposes, God will entrust you with true riches. That is to say, you are entering into eternity. There is a currency in heaven, he says. True riches. A true currency. More glorious and more great than the currency here on earth. And friend, if you were not faithful here, yes, you will be there, but you won't have very much. There is an economy to this kingdom. It is not an equal opportunity kingdom. What you do today matters. Be lazy today and you will have little then. Be generous today. Give all, leave it all on the field for Jesus and you will have much that day. That is our motivation. Lastly, Jesus says that we cultivate a heavenly attitude with our earthly money by choosing our master wisely. Choosing our master wisely. Jesus makes clear that money wants our worship. Money wants your worship. Look there at verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, and it means cannot, serve God in money. It's an emphatic statement, friend. You can take it or leave it, and perhaps you've you've left it more than you've taken it. You cannot do it. I know you've tried to do it. You've been juggling about it for some time. One toe dipped into the world and and the other in the kingdom. I I can manage both. I can worship God and my stuff. No, friend, it's a miserable life, isn't it? It has been for you. Amassing all of this possessions and things. And I want you to notice what he says here. You cannot serve two masters. God is a master and money is a master. You are a slave regardless. You get that, right? You're either a slave to God or you're a slave to your stuff. You see, you thought you worked for money. No, friend. You don't, it's not that arrangement. Money isn't serving you. You're serving money. You're, it's, it's slave and it's your evil taskmaster and it will drive you to places that you cannot return from. Jesus makes clear in the Sermon on the Mount that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your heart? Again, back to 1 Timothy is. Paul teaches young Timothy about guarding himself and his congregation. He says, For the love of money is the root of all evils. 
It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Friend, if you want to see this, this verse lived out, turn on TV, TBN. Watch Joel Osteen. Watch Prosperity Preachers. And you will see this verse laid out in your eyes. That the love of money through the craving of stuff, they have wandered away from the faith. I believe in my heart that Joel, he started off on the right road. He wanted to follow Jesus. But money is what he worshipped, not God. And so money is what he now worships. It is what he now gives himself to. It is his master. Dr. Tom Schreiner says, We show whom we serve by how we spend our money. We show whom we love and hate by how we spend our money. We serve money if we live to make money. Is that you? Do you live to make money? We serve money if we live for material things. We serve money if we dream about the comforts of this world that money can bring. We serve God if we use our money to please Him. God knows the motives of our hearts, He writes, and will judge us on that last day. The issue is whether Jesus is the Lord of our bank account and our stocks and bonds. We've joked about coming to fossilize in Florida. But I want to challenge you here. If that has been your life plan, that I pray that God interrupts that plan. And here's what I mean. That you used your worldly resources in order to prepare a future for you so that you could retire. But do not use that retirement as a time in which you can sip pina coladas on the beach, but to serve in the local church. Imagine now that you don't have the nine to five, how you can use that time to disciple people, to pray with people, to open the Bible and invite them into your life. There's so many examples I could share about men and women of our congregation who use their time. Like Sharon, who takes people to their doctor's visits and uh, opens the Bible with them and, and shares with them. Or her husband Mike, who comes up here and sweats his butt off in order to care for our property to make sure that our grass isn't dead. Faithfulness. Using their retirement. Leveraging, not so that they can go and serve themselves, but to serve others. I think of Lucy using her time and Miss Minich coming and the ladies this week, an example of giving, uh, packing shoeboxes in order to impact a community uh, of people that we don't even know. I could go on and on to countless men and women who have given themselves to serve this community and this church and these people for God's glory. For let us give generously being faithful stewards of the Lord's resources and wisely choosing the right master to worship, then God is glorified. Friend, I leave you with this question I want you to consider. Honestly, I pray. Talk about this over lunch. What does your bank statement reveal about who you serve? Honestly. 
Does your spending reflect the kingdom priorities that Jesus calls for in this text? Do you use your money shrewdly, prudently spending so that you have more to give to others? Do you steward your resources with the attitude that all that I have is God's, my home is God's, I'm going to use it for kingdom work. Everything I have is is for kingdom work. Do you spend reflecting that you worship the one true and living God? Or does it demonstrate that you are more a slave to a taskmaster of money than to a generous God who loves you and who has given all things to you in Christ? Friend, we have to cultivate an eternal perspective if we are to die to the evil of material possessions. C.S. Lewis, when he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, if you've ever read that tremendous series, very lengthy series, or perhaps watched the films, Lewis ends with, I think, is perhaps literary, liter- literarily, one of the greatest paragraphs that any modern writer has written. At the end of this great trilogy, great story rather, he writes this. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that had began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. As for us, this the end of all the stories, and we must most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, which in every chapter is better than the one before. Friend, let us live not treasuring this world, but investing in the world to come. May the Lord cultivate in us a heavenly attitude toward our earthly possessions. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come confessing our sin before You. No doubt many of us struggle quite ferociously with the love of money because of our prosperity, because of our, our God who has been so generous to us, who's given us so much, we have squandered away countless thousands of dollars in our lifetime. Could have been for kingdom purposes rather than selfish endeavors. Oh, Father, I pray that You would forgive us through the death of Christ, our Lord who died for us, that You would forgive us of our sin and our iniquity and awaken us to the world that is yet to come in an ending story that we will live forever. May we invest there for Your glory and our good in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we want to conclude our time this morning by singing a final hymn. A Christian's Daily Prayer. And as I've said before, I do hope you would pay attention to this hymn. This is not merely about a day in the life of the believer, but the life of the believer. Let's stand and sing together A Christian's Daily Prayer.